Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 371. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 371 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, and owner of Red Barn Audio, located in Portland, Maine. I'm talking about Pete Morse. Pete and I had a great conversation. Pete, of course, is yet another Portland Mainer that we're bringing on. We're really bringing attention to Portland, Maine. Seems like a really cool place. Super nice people, super talented people. So very excited to have Pete on. Pete Morse coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Hey, let's revisit my old favorite topic, backing up. You know you got to do it. And this is a great time of year. If you're listening to a fresh episode, this is a the beginning of the year. So set the new habit, get into the act of backing up, making sure that all of your data is safe. Everything that you generate or your clients send you and you work on and you need access to years down the road, it's really, it's just a helpful thing. I'm actually going to recommend something uh, just because I'm a big fan of it. Don't have any financial arrangements or kickbacks or anything like that. This is all straight up. Synology, NAS. Okay, so a NAS for the uninitiated. Network Attached Storage. I believe that's what it's called. I might be wrong. A NAS is just a series of hard drives tied together as one volume, or it could be that. And you can configure them in many different ways. Synology is a company that makes those and you attach them to your network. So I've got one in my bedroom closet sitting on a little uh, rolling cart and it's got a backup UPS attached to it so that if the power does go out and that happens, the Synology is, since it's running off battery power from the UPS, it immediately recognizes that, or the UPS recognizes that there's a power loss and it's going to safely shut down so the drives don't get goofed up, data you know, maintains its integrity, etc. The reason I like it is because it actually, it's like a mini computer. It's got, I think, some type of Intel processor in there, a certain amount of RAM, and you can uh, get into its operating system through a browser window. Doesn't matter what kind of uh, computer you have. And it's uh, relatively straight ahead to deal with. You can make it as advanced or complicated as you want. You can install these packages on it. So you can install, you know, a music server for streaming your music or your photos, or, you know, if you've got a storage of movies that you stream, like like some kind of a media server, you can do that. You can set up email servers, or you can just back up your client's data, which is really what I do. So check this out. I've got this plan that I do. You may have heard me talk about this plan. So I have a MacBook Pro, got this 2017 MacBook Pro sitting here, and it's got attached to that a Samsung SSD. Uh, It's like a two terabyte SSD. I put my Dropbox folder, not on the computer, but on the SSD. I know some people might say, oh my God, you're crazy. But that's how I do it. So I put that on there. And then Dropbox actually will talk to, well, okay, let's let's back up a bit. 
excuse the pun. Dropbox, obviously, every time I write to that Dropbox with anything I do, it writes to Dropbox. That's a given. You know that, for those of you that use Dropbox. What it also does is Dropbox then communicates directly to my NAS, and it says, hey, we've got new stuff here. Let's put this on the NAS. So anytime I do anything, like right now as I'm recording this, this is being written to the Dropbox folder on the SSD drive. That is then going up to Dropbox actively, and then it's going to the NAS. So as soon as I'm done, this exists in three different locations, two of which I can access here on at my house, and then one in the cloud. That has seemed to work for some time, and I really think that that's a great strategy. I also have, you know, packets of, uh, or folders of photos and stuff of, uh, you know, family stuff, stuff like that, you know, family stuff, family photos, family videos that gets synced up to Google Drive. And I also, I think I have one that's syncing to an Amazon account too. So these Synology NAS boxes can do a lot. And, you know, you can get a, a small one with a couple drives, or you can get a big one with, you know, 12 drives if you want. Uh, Andrew Sheps turned me on to this, and I really love the idea of it and how it works and the whole functionality. So my suggestion to you is if you don't have that kind of a setup, you might consider that kind of a setup. And really more important, you know, beyond getting a Synology NAS, that's not the end-all be-all. It's just what I like. It's more important to have a system in place that you know is reliable, that you've tested, you know that if you have a disaster, you can recover. Once you have that system in place, you don't really have to think too much about it. It doesn't become a daily concern. Oh, right, there's that drive. I have it backed up. If you already have the system in place and it's backing up, it's done. You know, you don't even have to have to worry about it. And you know that you're whatever you're generating for audio content or video content for those that do that too. You know that it's it's safe, it's duplicated. And that's the trick. Remember, unless it exists in three locations, the 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 kind of prevailing wisdom is is it doesn't exist because it could very easily disappear. A theft, a fire, data loss on a drive that doesn't work anymore. Just know that any drive you have, I don't care how much you paid for it, who you got it from, what company makes it, at some point it may fail. There are the exceptions. Some drives will last forever, but don't count on that. Count on a little bit of disaster in your life and then you'll be covered. Then you won't have to worry about it. Okay, so the other thing to think about too is, is what are you saving? I think the big question for many of us is, is it my responsibility to hold on to my client's data? And you know, you're going to have to figure that out, talk with your client. I tend to be a pack rat about it. I hold on to a lot of it just in case because disaster can strike your clients just as easily. And you could be the savior of the day if you've got, you know, the mixing files, the mastering session, the track, whatever it is, you know, any kind of audio data that you generate with your client. If you've got it, you've saved them. And that's just a, a great thing to do. It's the right thing to do, I think. But once again, it's up to you whether or not you want to be uh, the caretaker of all their stuff, because it does cost money. You know, it costs hard drive space. And let me tell you, you will fill these hard drives up and then you're going to have to keep buying new hard drives or you're going to have to get rid of stuff. So that's something to consider. Anyways, that's about it on this on this one. I just want you to think about it. 
Check out the Synology uh, brand of NAS drives, of NAS uh, units. They're, they're great. Your mileage may vary, but mine has been great, and others I've spoken to have also had great experiences. Uh, former WCA uh, guest Chris Salem, Andrew Sheps. Those are the two main ones that I've talked to about this. All right, well, that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Pete Morse here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. How are you, man? Doing great. You're talking to us from Portland, Maine. Seems like I've had Portland, Maine well represented on the show lately with the guys that you know, of course. Yeah, you've been representing Portland pretty nicely. Todd, Jason, and Pat running Acadia Recording, Pat Keen Mastering. Really enjoyed listening to those three episodes. 
It's always nice to know what other guys are doing here in the Portland area when it comes to music and navigating the world of recording in a small city. We're extremely lucky to have such great studios here in the Portland area. There are a few other studios close by, such as the Halo and Wyndham. There's the studio here in Portland and also Prism Analog. There's a great music scene here in Portland. Everybody is extremely supportive of one another, and I'm just very happy to call this home. And of course, you can't leave out Adam and Bob at Gateway. It's really cool to have that place here in Portland. So how far away are you from them? I'm super close, but I'm not in Portland. I'm in South Portland, and just a five to 10 minute car ride to get into the heart of the city where Acadia and Gateway are. It's extremely easy to get around in the city for sure. Mm, Okay, okay. Well, so you are operating out of your home, and that is Red Vault. Red Vault Audio. That's been in operation for some time, but you haven't always been in that location. What's the history of, of Red Vault? Oh, man, there's a long history of how my studio has evolved over the years, and it's kind of a long story, so hopefully you can bear with me on this. So the studio was originally called Busted Barn Recording and started that up about three or four years after graduating from Skidmore College in upstate New York. Right after graduating, I went out to Jackson Hole to ski bum for a year, and then I came back with my girlfriend at the time. We left Jackson Hole and came to Portland. She grew up in Freeport and wanted to be closer to her family. It also just seemed like a great place to live. And I had also spent some summers in the Brooksville and the Blue Hill area over the years and loved it here. So my girlfriend at the time's parents had an awesome space in Freeport, and they actually had an extra sort of carriage house on their property is this old farmhouse. And I foolishly decided to put some money into it and make a studio out of it, which was obviously a horrible idea (laughs) because we later broke up two years after it was finally completed. I'd taken out a small loan from a family friend, bought a bunch of lumber and built walls within walls, built a control room. I had two different isolation rooms. It worked. It didn't sound great, but it served its purpose. It was my first attempt at building a studio and operating a studio. So looking back on it, I learned so much about recording, acoustics, and it was then that I discovered that I wanted to try and do this the rest of my life. But back to the debacle of building the studio on my girlfriend's parents' property. We broke up, and thankfully, I had a great relationship with her folks, and they knew how much time and effort and passion I put into making that place what it was. So they let me stay there for two years after we broke up, which was extremely awkward, as you can imagine, driving up to your ex-girlfriend's parents' property every day to go to work. (laughs) This sounds very, very weird, but that's what happened. I had invested in this place. I had put a bunch of time and effort into it, and it was where I ran my business. So upon leaving that first studio, I had to pack up all my equipment, and I moved into my apartment, which was in Portland, I'd been living in Portland this whole time, but I had an apartment there and moved all the equipment in there, and that was my new home base. From a logistical standpoint, it made 
absolutely no sense to operate out of there because there were people living below me and people living above me. However, I didn't have a plan at that time and money was super tight. So I tried to make it work. And that's ultimately how I got into post-production work because I couldn't deal with the bands because we couldn't make any noise, (laughs) which kind of defeats the purpose of a recording studio. So studio number three came when I got an opportunity to move into the upstairs room at the Halo in Windham, Maine. It's about 20 minutes outside of town. My buddy Darren, who owns the place, brought me in. It was a great fit at the time. I was able to bring in all my equipment, set it up. But the best part was I had access to the live room and the control room when the other engineers weren't in it. So I could quickly take the files from that computer that which was running Pro Tools and bring all the tracks up to my suite to mix up there. I think I was there for two years and I had to get out for financial reasons. I just wasn't bringing in the work and my overhead was too high at that time. Luckily, we were able to find another engineer to move into that space with his gear. And I also had an opportunity to join forces with another veteran engineer in the Portland area, Lance Vardis. Lance already had a space, so it made it really easy to move right in. So I left Halo, and now we're on to the fourth studio here, and Lance and I joined forces and combined both of our businesses. He ran a studio called Muse Mix, and I was running Busted Barn Recording. We fused both entities together. He had his gear, I had mine, and we basically picked from all the gear and set up a space that worked for us. The interesting thing about this studio was that it used to be an old vault for the railroad company. They used to keep all their money in the basement, and there were three rooms that had these vault doors. So when it came time to name the studio, that's where Red Vault Audio came from. Not only does Lance do studio stuff, but he's also front of house for the World Wrestling Federation. Oh my gosh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he travels around the U.S. doing sound for them. So he, even when we joined forces, he was often on the road. So because of this, I often was the head engineer in the Red Vault audio space. So I dealt with a lot of the clients. I did a lot of the recording there over... The years that we were there, I think we were there for six years, 2010 to 2016. I kind of took it over because his work schedule increased and he just never had the time to come into the studio. So eventually we transferred full ownership to me. And I think I took that over full time in 2014. In the time that I did run the business with Lance, I think my biggest takeaway was just having another engineer friend of mine to bounce ideas off of and to collaborate. And to this day, that's the thing that I miss the most from that partnership. Lance is a fantastic guy, great engineer, and probably one of the best guys that you could go into business with. About a year after he left, I bought a house in South Portland and started dreaming about having a home studio at my place. And It was in 2016 that it became a reality. Oh, studio number five. (laughs) Wow. You've been in and out of some studio building and and 
partnerships and spaces and relationships got i can't believe that your ex-girlfriend's parents let you stay in that one place <laughs> for two years that's i know that's pretty incredible not advised i'm sure no in terms of a, a studio plan for others but now that you're working out of your home and you can look back on that whole past what are some of the takeaways from that past of partnerships and studio building and and all the things that you went through in that time period and comparing it to your current situation well that path was meandering all over the place I was just trying to get my feet on the ground as an audio engineer. In that time, I learned how I needed to be open to all sorts of audio opportunities, even if it wasn't recording bands, working with musicians and producing and mixing and doing some mastering. That is where my love is. However, I quickly learned that I needed to be a jack-of-all-trades in order to survive, especially in the Portland area. Moving from studio to studio taught me how to be resilient, and in each place, it's been a challenge to be profitable and to keep the doors open. So a huge lesson that I take away from that experience is kind of rolling with the punches and having to adapt to your business model frequently in order to stay afloat. As much as there was a lot of movement, that versatility really worked in my favor, which set me up for the position I'm in right now. But the most important takeaway from this experience is that I'm still doing what I love. I've put my head to the grindstone and I've somehow just made it happen. While I'm super fortunate to be in my dream studio, there are some things that I still look back on that I miss, such as the camaraderie with a work environment, being around other creative people all the time. That is something I've kind of shot myself in the foot with by building my own space and working out of my home. That's a realization that bums me out. I just, I'm getting dumber socially, which my wife constantly points out. So there are pros and cons. Yeah. I can definitely see the pros and the cons of that. And I guess it just depends on on one's personality and one's desire for that community, whether or not that is something you need in terms of, you know, having people come in and out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've always done everything kind of by myself. I've never interned with anyone. I'm self-taught. And that community aspect has always been something I wish I had. Because of the limitations on some of the studios I was in, I really started gravitating more towards post-production work because I was working by myself all the time, it seemed like. And post-production set me apart, at least here in the Portland area, from some of the other engineers who were killing it, working with musicians and bands, and they also had the space to do it. I just started to think outside the box a little bit and... I took a step back to think, okay, what is working for me right now? How can I be profitable? How can I keep the doors open? And it made me look at all sorts of different avenues in the audio world, such as mixing for video, sound design, e-learning production, producing radio ads. And I'm a multi-instrumentalist and a composer, so I also dabbled in stock music creation, which proved to be very lucrative and i continue to see royalty checks come in from that type of work 
So post-production really worked for me in my situation, and I gradually became to really enjoy it, especially the sound design aspect of it. That part is extremely fun, very creative, and I've been fortunate to work with quite a few video production houses offering that service. As the business continues to evolve, I'm finding that post-production to be a significant part of my revenue. The post-production side of things, what are we talking about exactly? Are we talking about working on post-production for films or television? So yeah, mostly doing sound design and mixing for videos for web and broadcast. I have quite a few video production companies that I work with. I'm usually cleaning up the voiceover, making it sound as polished as possible, working with the B-roll, mixing in the music track. If there's a sound design budget, try and up the audio and make the experience more powerful for the viewer. Am I correct in saying that that generally pays better than working with bands? I've found that to be the case just with my own working style. Usually when I'm recording a band, it takes a long time just because I'm such a perfectionist when it comes to the mixing time. And I have a harder time letting go of the mix before it goes out into the world. That can eat up a lot of time. And that's not helpful for generating revenue, obviously. So at least for me, working with video is more lucrative and I'm able to move through it faster. Granted, the majority of the video stuff that I'm working on are short form videos. I mean, we're not, I'm not doing a whole lot of long form right now, although I have done some films, done audio behind that and soundtrack stuff. But the timing on a lot of these videos are under five minutes, so I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, not to mention there are often strict deadlines with completing the project. Personally, the bands that I'm working with don't have the biggest budgets, and those projects somehow end up taking the longest And I'd have to say in at least half the cases, the video production stuff that I'm doing audio for, there are bigger budgets and it's more lucrative and doesn't involve as much time. Something similar with both music clients and post-production clients is going above and beyond whatever the budget is time-wise just to make things as great as possible from a advertising standpoint, everything that leaves your studio is a direct reflection of your services and capabilities. When did you initially get into the idea of doing audio? Oh man, that's a good question. I think it stemmed from watching MTV. I remember watching that show as most kids did growing up in the 80s and the video for Learning to Fly by Pink Floyd made something click inside my head. I just loved that song and I consequently just adore Pink Floyd from the first time I heard that song. But there was something in just how it sounded because that recording completely put me in a trance and just kind of sparked something. I don't remember what the record store was called. I think it might have been Strawberries, but I remember taking my allowance whenever I would get some money and go to the store and I would just randomly buy these Pink Floyd tapes. And I don't know why I just didn't look at the screen and see what the name of the song was. But I'd Every time I'd get a tape, I'd bring it home and I'd put it into my yellow sport Walkman and just hope that I bought the right album. So I think I went through four albums until I finally got my hands on Momentary Lapse of Reason, which had that song on and I played the shit out of that album. From there, I wanted to be Dave Gilmore and went to my mom and 
pleaded with her to get me a guitar and I wanted to do lessons and it just became a passion of mine. And from there, it evolved into recording songs and documenting those ideas that I came up with through a Tascam 4-track that I bought with some money that I made mowing lawns in my neighborhood. You know, it's interesting. I think we're all very aware of when our recording influence began, but are you also aware of when the first idea of having your own studio came to mind? Oh, absolutely. It was when I got that 4-track. I would just record my guitar ideas and come up with these songs. I remember one time I learned all of the parts for Time to Get Going by Tom Petty off the Wildflowers album and just would lay down the pads and then I had a shitty drum machine. I'd put the drums down and then I'd do the guitar and then I'd sing and I just would try to get it as close to that recording as possible. As I got more into recording, I'd get more stuff. I remember I got a DAP machine and I'd start making uh, albums and stuff. I'd record on the four track and then bounce everything down to the DAP machine. And from that young age, I continued to just record myself. I would record my friends. Eventually, when I went to college, I brought my gear and set up a studio in my dorm room. Then I started living off campus in two different houses over the years, both junior mm -hmm. and senior year. In both houses, I had my own studio set up. My major in college was music, which doesn't mean anything. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my time at Skidmore, but especially in this industry, I, I don't know, I tell people to stay away from music majors. But anyway, I was heavily involved in the music technology program through Skidmore, and my thesis was to make a full album, and I was graded on that. So to answer your question, I think that I knew that I wanted to do this from a very young age. What are the lessons you've learned about the financial end of, of all of this <laughs> since you've been on the roller coaster ride, as I have as well? Don't buy expensive equipment or you'll be paying it back for the rest of your life. I've made a lot of bad decisions with purchasing gear and fucking Sweetwater with their 48-month 0% APR financing. That bites me in my ass on the regular. I had a stupid habit in the past of challenging myself by making investments in my business, such as equipment, and then figuring out how I'm going to pay for it after I've bought it, which is how not to run a good business and probably my biggest downfall as a business owner over the years. To not overextend yourself financially is such an important lesson. It's really important to do your numbers and make sure you're covering all your bases, all your overhead. And I'm still a work in progress. My accountant must think I'm insane with how discombobulated my QuickBooks looks. Let's focus on a bit of workflow things and gear-related questions. So when it comes to mixing for video, is there a lot that you have? Do you, d does one need a big setup to do that? No, you definitely don't need a big setup. Aside from the software side of things and your sound effect libraries, if you're doing sound design, the biggest cost, as in any studio, is your playback system. Invest in quality monitors and, most importantly, make sure that your room sounds good. That seems to be one of the most overlooked things in a lot of recording studios. And prior to moving in here, 
I suffered from that my whole career. In addition to moving from space to space and having to relearn how things sound in the different control rooms, my room sounded like ass and things wouldn't translate well. Spent many years just chasing my tail for sure. So I guess just having an accurate playback system, I guess, which obviously is important for any studio. I think it's also really important to have a good pair of headphones because most of the time when you are sending these mixes back, they're sometimes listening back on headphones versus listening through the speakers on their laptops. So it's good to just cross-check everything in headphones as well. I know this is a little off topic from your question, but I'm finding these smaller video production companies finally starting to understand the importance of audio within their productions. I do understand that it usually comes down to budget, but a video is visuals and audio. So those two senses kind of go hand in hand. I'm also finding that video houses that are allocating the budget for audio they kind of stand out from the rest of the pack in terms of the quality of the work that's coming out of that place. I wish all video houses really understood how important audio is. So it's important to factor in the audio budget before a video project develops. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Let me ask you this. Having, you know, the sound effects and music library or at least access to it, whether it's local on, on a hard drive or online where you have some subscription to some company and having a DAW where you're, you've got all your elements, all of that makes complete sense to me. But when it comes to like projecting the video, do you have like a separate TV or, or monitor that you put the video up on that is fed from your computer? I know this is an audio thing and here I'm like curious about the video aspect, but how does that work? 
I used to have a multiple monitor setup where I'd have one monitor have just the video and the other one would just be Pro Tools edit mix. But for a few years, I've had just a 75-inch LCD screen that works fine. But I use it in conjunction with the Stream Deck, which is awesome. And it just allows me to quickly bring up the video, bring up different window configurations. And I can do it extremely fast. And it's been a lifesaver. But it's also allowed me to get by with using one big monitor instead of multiple ones. And I mean, seven... <laughs> 75 inches is pretty big for a, a computer screen. I, I do have it set back about 10 feet away from me, so it doesn't seem as big as it might seem. There's a nice little advertisement for Stream Deck in there. Have you checked those out yet, Matt? No, but the more I hear about them, the more I'm thinking, hmm, should I get one of those? Yeah, they're great. Yeah, they're just quick keys to speed up your workflow. I'm right-handed, so I have the mouse on the mm. right-hand side, and then I have the Stream Deck on the left-hand side. What about in mixing? Are you just mixing in stereo, or do you have like a 5.1 setup, or you set it for Dolby Atmos? Or So I think it's funny to be talking about all this video stuff and for you to know that I am just stereo-based. I unfortunately don't have the need for Dolby Atmos or even 5.1. I used to have a 5.1 system when I was working with my buddy Lance, but the need wasn't there, and... Therefore, we sold the speakers. Dolby Atmos is on my wish list for sure, but I need the clients before I make that financial jump and upgrade to that capability. And I guess that is a factor is that there is a bulk of work out there that is video-based post-production work that doesn't require surround capability, that people just want a great stereo mix for their video. And those could be commercials or corporate videos for in-house use. Is that generally the case that you find? Yeah, exactly. Most of the stuff that I'm working on just doesn't make sense to have any sort of a surround capability playback system. I mean, the majority of the stuff is on your phone, on your laptop, computer, mm. where you're listening back, a lot of stuff on Instagram, Facebook. Again, I, I don't have the demand for it right now. That's not to say that in the future, it's something that I will invest in, but it's been stereo pretty much all the way for me, at least. And considering that video is a huge market for my business right now, I should probably start thinking about that. Would you say that that's the bulk of your income is from web-based video production work? Or what's the, the breakup of your audio work or the breakdown? I would say it's a big part of my income, especially right now. I feel like I'm falling more and more into sound design and mixing for video. Another great revenue stream for me is stock music and the royalties I can see from that. I've been a part of Premium Beat for about 10 years now, and I haven't uploaded a whole lot of stuff recently, but old songs keep on making money, and that's been amazing. I used to do quite a bit of e-learning, and I hope that comes back a little bit, but AI has been developed so much that a lot of these fucking robots are taking over the duties of reading scripts that I haven't had much demand for it recently. I mean, I can only speak for the companies that I'm a part of, but that used to be a 
big part of my income 2016 through right before the pandemic. As I think I said earlier, my real passion is working with music, recording, mixing. I definitely do a fair share of mastering, which is great, but I just have seen more promise in the post-production world, at least for me, financially speaking. But I find that the different audio services I offer ebb and flow. It's ever evolving. I seem like I go through phases where there's one service that's a little bit more profitable than another. Additionally, it changes things up and makes every day a little bit different, which I really enjoy. Yeah. You mentioned your kids. Can you talk a little bit about the work-life balance and how you juggle family life versus audio life? Well, it's been hard with the pandemic and the kids being home. My kids are five and seven. I have this studio at my home, so there have been a lot of frozen dance parties, let me tell you. But it's been challenging trying to separate work from family life. A big reason for building this studio here is so I could work at night and so I could just be able to transition and not be away from my family. Before, when I was working out of other studios, I was usually gone a lot of the time because I was just hammering away. But the studio at the home has really enabled me to be more of a family man here. However, the real challenge is being able to separate work from family life. And when you have a studio right at home, it's increasingly hard to be able to walk out of a space where you've been concentrating on the dumbest sound of some resonance in somebody's voice and it's driving you crazy and you can carry that frustration, at least for me, from one room into the next. My wife and I have a running joke, sort of, that I need five to ten minutes to decompress and unwind. Once I come out of my studio for the day, I miss being able to get in the car and have that time to drive home in order to reset my mind, reset it from work mode to family mode, and I just don't have that with having the studio at home, which has been a challenge. And I recognize that I'm not my best self leaving work and starting to do dinner and take care of the kids. And it's also not good that I, as a person, wear my emotions on my sleeve. So I usually show exactly how I'm feeling, whether I'm happy that I was able to nail a mix or had some great feedback from a client or having some frustration about working with a mix where there's some problem areas and I can't seem to f make anything sound good. So I often find myself bringing that energy outside of the studio, which is not helpful. Deep thoughts by Pete <laughs> Morris. All right. You work from home though, Matt, right? Oh yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't do it any other yeah. way. I, I am so, I mean, long before COVID I was working from home and I don't know how, how you feel about this, but there's just this comfort zone of, I know what it sounds like. I don't have to worry about any other personalities using the gear and plugging things in where I don't want them plugged in. But it makes going out to a studio to work with a band, you know, when I'm tracking, it's a giant field trip. It's it's super fun. Yeah. But I'm insistent on bringing everything back to work from my place for mixing and, you know, the occasional overdub. Right. Well, how does it, I mean, you have kids, right? Yeah, yeah. And my, my kids are now at the age where they're making fun of the Frozen soundtrack. 
<laughs> oh, bless their hearts. So what does the process look like for you when you're transitioning from studio guy to family man? I have to make a clear delineation, you know, and usually when I'm ready to walk out, it's because I'm on for making dinner that night or we've got some, maybe some event we're all going to go to, whether it's a movie or go to some holiday thing. Like one, one thing that we like to do is go into San Francisco and see like the San Francisco symphony play the music to a movie. Like you'll watch the movie on a screen and the SF symphony will play the soundtrack. So if you go watch like home alone, for example, you're watching the movie but all the music you're hearing is coming right right there. So that's a like that's a big thing. So my point in all of that is is that when I walk out that door, I'm generally like saying, "Okay, I'm done. I'm done for the day." And I don't know, the more I do this, the more I I uh adopt banker's hours. I'm just like, "Okay, well, it's five o'clock. I think I'm going to walk out of here." Yep. And maybe I'll come back in to check and upload either for the podcast to send the the interview to edit to Anne Marie or send a mix to a client to make sure that they have their mix or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. But yeah, so I, I love it. And what I, I I'm not a hundred percent clear on, did you say it was in 2016 you ultimately ended up bringing the, the whole thing home? Yeah, it was 2016 that I started building the new studio. And in order to get the loan, I had to put together a business plan and there were quite a few hurdles to jump through in order to be able to, gain their trust in loaning me the money. But once I did have their approval, I went ahead and hired an architect and consulted uh, Lou Clark of Sonic Space, who's a super knowledgeable acoustics guy. He actually did the design for Here Studios up in Camden, Maine. He also did Pat's Room, I believe. But Lou is a guy I contracted early on in the development phase to oversee everything and basically to design a kick-ass space that sounded awesome. Once we figured out what the dimensions of the studio were going to be, he drew everything up in SketchUp. So we had 3D computer-generated models of what the inside looked like all the way down to the dimensions of individual pieces of framing, all the different panels that went up. I have diffusers hanging from the ceiling. I have a rear diffuser in the back. All those dimensions were laid out for me. Even the type of wood that I was using, how big it was, all the measurements were right there in this program. Furthermore, we had the desk laid out. We had where the speakers were going to go. All the lighting and electricity was clearly marked on this plan, and it was essential to have Lou in the design process to make everything work. What didn't work was the company that I hired to build everything. They didn't know the first thing about building a studio. And as a result, we went way over budget. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's something that we all have to take into account. If we're going to hire somebody and you got a construction crew, that is probably a great thing to ask right up front. Have you ever built a studio? Do you have any experience? Show me references. Give me some names to call because you have that one opportunity to borrow that money to get it happening. Yeah. And if they screw it up, it really, really throws the momentum of the whole project off. It was a pretty bad situation for sure. I mean, when you are sitting in there and you have a concrete floor and you are just looking at the drywall just hanging there unsanded and your budget has dried up, it really puts you 
in a tough spot and what was I going to do not finish the studio I had come so far already and I had an obligation with the loan company which dealt with small business loans so they were tracking our progress to make sure that their investment was being put to good use so I had to resort to credit cards and I went about $30,000 over my budget because I needed to finish the project and get back to work. I hadn't been working that whole time that they had been dicking around building this place and I needed to start to begin to recoup some of that money and, and get back to work. So ultimately I had to finish the work myself. Luckily I had all of the blueprints from Lou. I used those SketchUp designs to complete the project. Not only did it put me an additional $30,000 in the hole, but I had to do all the finish work inside. And it also set me back about two months. I had clients that were going elsewhere because I wasn't in operation. So I was very naive and learned a hard lesson. That's okay because we're having this conversation now and others are going to hear it and go, uh-huh, okay, I'm about to build a studio. I need to learn <laughs> from this. So your sacrifice is greatly appreciated. Uh, well, I'm glad it could be your guinea pig. I've had some, a couple rough experiences with contractors in the past for home stuff. I won't go into long stories, but I am generally a little distrustful of contractors. And when you're in the middle of a project with somebody and things are going south, it takes a great amount of patience to make sure that you don't scare them off and have the whole project grind to a halt. Mm. But it also, there's a little bit of advocating for yourself that you have to do to make sure that it's done and it's done right. Whether you're doing stuff at your house or you're building a studio, those are things to consider. So my question now in retrospect for you is, do you think you could have done it cheaper was it necessary to do five layers of drywall and do the level of construction that you were doing? Unfortunately, I did have to go to that level of complete anal retentiveness because my house is right on a busy road in South Portland. It was out of the question to do a floating floor due to finances that was going to be too expensive, but we did go as far as isolating the exterior shell from the interior walls through Isomax sound isolation clips, just to give you a picture of everything that went into the construction of the walls just for sound isolation. I hope I get this right, but I know that we did plywood on the outer shell. We then blew in closed cell insulation. Next came six inch mineral wool. We just used some Roxel. And then we used a layer of plywood. And then from there, we used the Isomax clips and we used these furring strips that went into those clips, mounted onto those, three-quarter inch plywood, followed by three-quarter inch drywall, followed by half-inch drywall. Additionally, we used green glue in between the three-quarter inch plywood and the three-quarter inch drywall and staggered our panels. And we also used acoustic caulk in between all of those three outer layers on the Isomax clips. So as you could imagine, just the amount of materials that went into the structure of the studio, the cost was huge. The disconnect with the GC and what led to all of the overages was the amount of time that it took to install all this stuff. It was all specced out before we began the project, but hours just went way over and 
materials ended up costing more than what was estimated. It just turned into a giant fiasco. And to make matters worse, he put his less experienced workers on this job. So I had to do a lot of the quality control going in after every day that they worked and checking over to make sure that they did the work the right way. As an example, I had to go in after they were done and recock all of the seams of those three outer layers. <laughs> I, I don't mean to make this be a complete sob story. I just used somebody that didn't know what the fuck they were doing. <laughs> yeah. That's what it boils down to. And I'm sorry to laugh, but yeah, that's it's so important. Absolutely. You know, I, I consider myself very, very lucky in that I'm located in a place where it's very quiet. Yeah. I can hear a plane flying overhead, but I just took an existing room and I didn't do anything but acoustic treatment to it. And I'm sure that is going to change as I implement my Dolby Atmos mix setup here in the, right. in the coming month. But one thing that I feel fortunate of is former WC, I guess, Mike Blodgett, who's a great electrician, is my electrician. He's a studio owner and he's an electrician. And Anytime something electrical is needed, whether it's studio related or not, I call Mike because I just know that it's going to get done right. But that's the trick is in your location, the audience needs to remember, find the people locally that have that knowledge mm. and seek referrals because it's, it's very, very critical. Well, so wrapping that up, what I'm curious about now is, have you got past those financial hurdles of that construction? Yeah, I'm mostly caught up from that, but it's taken about five years to get to that place. At the time that the studio finally was operational, I was way behind on my business plan and sort of my projections. Actually went to the SBA and got some free counseling, which was pretty helpful to try and realign my projections and the path that my business was moving in to get out of that financial hole, I really needed to figure out different ways to bring in money. And I mean, I talked about it before, but I just tried to think outside the box in terms of audio needs. And luckily at that time, I was working quite a bit with this e-learning company, which had sizable budgets and got me through that time. And I should also say that since that time in 2016, 2017, their budgets have dried up and I've had to go back to the drawing board to figure out where I could offset that revenue that was so promising for such a long time. To throw another curveball into this whole situation, my second daughter was born right around the time of the construction of the studio. So I really put my family in a tough place financially, and I felt as any father or spouse would, I didn't want to put my family in a tough spot, but I did. Once I had this studio vision, I couldn't let it go. We get pretty gung-ho about our ideas about studios and how it's all going to work, but we also have to be very cautious because we have a responsibility to those we love, those closest to us. Oh, for sure. Because our decisions, of course, affect them greatly. Yeah, it's it's a, as you say, it's a dance. It's a there's a a balance there that has to be struck. 
communication, I, I'm sure you would agree with our significant others when it comes to doing stuff like this is absolutely critical. Yeah. Just to say, hey, I'm doing this and this is the reason I'm doing it or, the, or I'd like to do this. Are you cool with this? Are there any things that you can think of that I'm not thinking about? Yeah, she was pretty cool with it. Keep in mind, we had two small kids, so she was very involved with them. And she also realized that I was away from from the house and away from the family when I was working, especially at the studio at the old railroad building. So part of my argument was that I'd be around more, which I definitely am around the house. And I'm more of an integral part of the kids. And I knew that it was going to be a hard road off the bat, which it has been trying to recoup those finances and whatnot. But I knew in the back of my mind that I'd find a way to make it work and eventually my overhead would come to a place where I was able to manage pretty easily. As I'm sure you know, and anybody who runs a small creative business, such as a studio, there are some months that are amazing and there are some months that completely suck balls, but that has been an issue in my house because I can't guarantee a certain amount of money that's going to be coming in every single month. Yeah. Yeah. And when the money is coming in, we're counting on that for monthly expenses. And then sometimes there's unforeseen expenditures that go along with that. It's like, oh, crap, this project is getting out of hand. I have to buy another big old hard drive mm -hmm. and, or, or I've got to buy a raid and that's going to be another thousand bucks or whatever. That's a challenge. So would you say that the key there is to try to find some steady income in whatever it is we're doing? Like find that one steady client, no matter how diverse that client may be. Exactly. Relationships are such a huge part of any business, especially a creative one where you're selling services. As much as I want to sit behind the desk and work on creative projects, there's a networking part to this, which is crucial for keeping that steady work coming. I have some extremely strong relationships with video production companies here in the New England area, and they know that I'm gonna go the extra mile for them in order to bring their project to the next level, and trust is huge. Yeah, wow. Well, there's some great lessons to be learned here for all of us, and I'm sure that you are wiser and stronger for it, for everything that you've been through and with building a studio, but at the end of the day, you now have a fantastic studio. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel very fortunate to have what I have here and to work with the clients that I work with and just do what I love. I set out to do this from a very young age and I think it's great that I've made those dreams come true and not everybody can say they love to go to work in the morning and I can absolutely say that and walk into the next room and get to work. Going back on something I said earlier in this conversation in regards to working by myself and not being around other creative people and having that community aspect, that is absolutely something that I do miss working here in my own studio, uh, especially with COVID times and whatnot. I haven't had too many people coming into the studio to record especially if I do have people coming in, I mean, they're coming into my house, they're using my family's bathroom, it can get tricky. So not having that human connection has been a bummer. 
it's just become so easy to do most of my work remotely, collaborating with people online. And that human interaction has been lost a bit. I don't know how you deal with it working out of your studio, but do you feel the same way, not always having that human connection on a daily basis? I do. I also found it a bit of a distraction, though, too, because you take a break and you want to chit chat and that chit chatting leads to, hey, why don't we just go to lunch? And then, right, you know, you're doing that day after day after day and working at home. You know, my wife's office used to be inside the house. Now we have an ADU accessory dwelling unit outside the house that's now set up and she's working out there. So kids at school, wife's in her office. I'm in my studio. It's like it's time to work. Right. Yeah. 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 There's nothing there's nothing going on in the house, which is great. So I do miss it. But at the same time, I like the the solitary aspect of it. And you Mm -hmm. know what? Quite honestly, my wife will text me and say lunch. And the two of us can go to lunch, which I love because yeah. then I just get to hang, hang out with my wife for lunch and then come back and get back to work. So that works out for me in that way. But I totally understand where you're coming from. Just having the various bands and other engineers and, and that camaraderie that comes with all of that, working in a studio in a facility, it's enjoyable for sure. Yeah, it is enjoyable. And luckily I play in a few bands so I can get that sort of social connection when I'm playing with them. Well, this has been great, man. Where can people find out more about you? People can go to my website, redvaultaudio.com. I got some links up there. There's some social links. However, I need to up my uh, social media game, but that's the place to go. I got a link up there for my email as well. Always down to hear from people and talk shop and all things audio. That's the best place. Okay, well, we'll put that in the show notes, of course. That is is a given. Well, I really appreciate you making the time for me today and coming on the show and, and telling your story. I know that it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride here and there, but it sounds like you have got it under control and that you have a great place to work out of and the work is coming in. Yeah, it's, it's been about a 20-year road and hopefully some of your listeners can take some of this information away and hopefully I said a few things that will help people not run into the same mistakes that I made. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Pete. I appreciate your time and you take care. You too, Matt. Thanks so much. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Pete Morris here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for being here with me today. I certainly appreciate it. Remember, guest suggestions, don't go to the contact form. I know some of you have been doing that. You fill out the contact form and you send me a guest suggestion there. That's not the place to do it. Go to the guest suggestion form. I really would appreciate it if that could get squared away. That way I have a central place I go to to look at your guest suggestions. So uh, yeah, do that. 
we'll all be square. It'll be great. Um, but that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale in the working class audio theme song, and the magical Mr. Chuck Smith with that booming voice at the beginning of the show. You know the deal. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>